one of the best ways I know to get work-life balance is to be a practice owner. Now, if you choose to be a solo practice owner and a solo veterinarian and not allow anybody to help you, not build an advisory team, not hire a practice manager, you may not get that work-life balance. Is private practice ownership still a thing? Man, he hopes so. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, the practice-owning consultant, Stith Kaiser, with Blue Heron Consulting, is the guy who wants people to know if they want, they can do this ownership thing. Stith fell into vet med the way a lot of you do family ties, and he kind of fell into a chance to own as a non-doctor after leaving the family business. So here's kind of how that happened. I grew up in veterinary medicine, and my earliest memory, some of its memory, some of its story, was bouncing around in the back of dad's truck. He's a veterinarian, been retired for years now, but was a veterinarian, and he would load me up in the truck to go pull calves in the middle of the night. So I truly was raised up in the profession. Like many kids of veterinarians, I've been asked a lot, well, did you ever think about being a veterinarian? And certainly dad and I had that conversation. I was very fortunate to have parents that were very supportive, whichever route. I've certainly met some veterinarians that are burnt out on it and actively tell their kids, you don't want to do what I've done. Choose a different profession. And there's others out there that feel like their kids need to follow in their exact footstep. And I'm not here to give parenting advice. But for me, I was lucky in that the mom and dad were both very supportive, pursue it or don't pursue it. Given that I grew up in it, uh, and his dad, his practice shifted from a mixed animal ambulatory into a small animal hospital that he built in a rural small town in Kentucky. He ended up owning a couple of privately owned small hospitals in small towns. And it was that evolution that I watched him go through that really, I'd say, sold me on veterinary medicine. And I did, going through high school, figure, you know what, I'll probably try to go you know, pre-vet or animal science and try sure. to get into veterinary school. And I remember, Brendan, in, in high school, senior year, and my veterinary students have heard this story before, but dad and I were out checking cows on the farm, and he asked me, are you thinking about veterinary school? And I said, yes, sir. I really want to do what you've done. I've, I've loved watching you grow the business. I've loved watching the people piece of it, the operational piece, and all the challenges, and I think fun sometimes, that comes along with ownership. And I remember dad said, if what you're passionate about is people, and operations, why put yourself through veterinary school? That moment, senior year of high school, really flipped the switch for me. And I basically decided then, you know what? He's right. I'm passionate about the profession. I'm passionate about what medicine does, obviously, in veterinary medicine. But my passion is not clinical medicine. My passion is everything else that has to happen so that we can deliver offer that best quality of care, no matter how a certain hospital defines quality of care. Did that moment as it dropped, you know, things get compressed in when he said that, were you like, was it like a light bulb? Like, right. I'm not into that. Or were you a little defensive? Like what? No, I do want to be a veterinarian. Did you have to think it over? Or was it like just instant? It was instant. And then I recognized that if I had tried to get into veterinary school, I'd have been doing it because that was the traditional path, not because that was my passion. What I will say, though, is, and my wife's a veterinarian, so for her, 
she knew from a young age she wanted to be a veterinarian. It, it was very easy for her to know her path. I'm not saying the path was easy, but right. she knew I got to get these grades in high school. I got to major in this in college. I got to get these grades in college. And so it was very laid out. When we took the veterinary school piece of the puzzle out of the puzzle, it was a bit scary, Brendan, in that all of a sudden the path wasn't as clear. And so I went into undergrad and graduated from undergrad with a degree in business management which in hindsight has been a blessing, but there was some fear around not having that direct path of I know what my next step's supposed to look like. Right. Did you know for sure when you went through that four years or whatever of your program, you're like, I want to go work. I'm going right back to vet practice. Or you're like, no, no, I'm going to do a business thing now. I was thinking about business. What I knew is I didn't want to come back and work for dad. And that is not a reflection on dad, not a reflection on the clinic, but at least in the small town America that I grew up in and live in and still love, if I had returned to work for dad, I'd have always been viewed as, oh, well, that's the doctor's son. And I could have been the best manager in the world or the most incompetent manager of the world. Uh And it wouldn't have mattered because I would have quote unquote gotten the job because I was the boss's son. So what I did know was I didn't want to come back and grow up under dad's shadow, which sounds worse than I mean it to, because I have so much respect for him as a mentor too. But I knew I wanted to do something different. That small town thing, the strength of family lines, and you cannot help. It's a good thing and that you always feel nestled in that family, but also it means no matter what you do in that small town, you were always nestled in that family. Oh, trust me. I learned that lesson in high school a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows everything. Okay. So you're like, I think I do want to do vet practice stuff, but I don't want to go back to that practice. Yes, sir. And I'll try to jump ahead a bit here just for the sake of time. I'd always wanted to live out West for a variety of reasons. After I graduated or actually with my senior year of of undergrad, I went out West to a networking event through no skill or talent of my own, but just dumb blind luck. I was at a chamber of commerce event out there, ran into a practice owner who owned a seven doctor mixed animal practice when he hired me, his name was Dave. When he yeah. hired me, he needed an, an interim hospital administrator. They had some family stuff going on. He knew the role was going to be filled in January of the next year. And he basically needed somebody to kind of get him through six or seven months. And so he took a, a leap of faith on me, hired me while I was still in undergrad. Towards the end, it was April of my senior year. Started yeah. working for him remotely. And then as soon as I graduated, I moved out west, uh, settled down there and uh, stepped into the hospital administrator role for his hospital. That's interesting there. I see now that we're deep. First we had, I hope this will come out soon enough where we'll be still talking about the great resignation. So everybody talks about this great resignation. And then of course, everybody starts pitching it as the great regret as inflation is going up. And then we worry about layoffs. We're hearing that job offers getting rescinded. So we hear people moving out places and then, hey, the job's not there. I think it's interesting that you're like, I'm going to take this leap. You know, this is a temporary, at least this is supposed to be just a temporary job. Right. Did that wig you out at all? Like, no, no, I'm going to get out there. This is my leap. I'm going to get out there. And if that job doesn't turn into permanent, something else will. It's a good question. I probably didn't overthink it at the time, which is good because I probably would have panicked. Before <laughs> I went to that Chamber of Commerce event, at, this is going to show my age, I went through the yellow pages and I sent letters to about 40 different companies, consulting companies in different industries, because I feared consulting would be an easy way to kind of get my foot in the door. So it wasn't hospital specific. And this connection, the recommendation to go to the Chamber of Commerce event where I met Dave was a recommendation actually from a consulting company that I reached out to that was not hiring and said, hey, go, we recommend if you want to meet people in the area, go do this event. And I guess I felt like that some of those connections I had made and tried really hard to nurture during that process, if I didn't have a, another opportunity 
in January when I needed to transition out of Dave's, I was hoping that if I maintain those relationships in a genuine way, another door would open. Okay. Yes, it does make sense. Okay, now it doesn't sound so crazy. No, that sounds like a good plan. But I could see also how you said anxiety and fear might have uh, overwhelmed me if I dwelled too much on, I don't really know what my long-term plan is when I get there. I don't, it's not all locked in. So, okay. Yes, sir. You have that temporary job. How does your career spin out from there in management and ownership and consulting? Sure. There's been three major turning points, if you will, in my career. And I'm going to hit them all fairly quickly, but then happy to slow down for any of it. Knowing that the opportunity with Dave was short term, I knew I needed to do something else. I was driving home from the clinic one night and I heard on the radio a commercial for eHarmony.com, if you remember that old dating site. Yeah. Yep. So what intrigued me about eHarmony was they focused, and I actually never used the site for better or for worse, but they focused on compatibility was their marketing. And I thought to myself, here I am at a seven doctor hospital. We're growing. We're trying to find veterinarians. And at the time, the recruiters I was familiar with, at least, they didn't focus on compatibility. They simply said, you're in Colorado. You want a veterinarian in Colorado. So here's all the resumes for veterinarians in Colorado. And then I had to spend a lot of my time as a hospital administrator doing all the legwork. And so hearing that eHarmony, I remember thinking to myself at the time, it would be really cool to take that business philosophy and focus on compatibility because you and I both know Brennan spends so much time in the industry, the right hire, whether it's a doctor or a manager or a technician or a client service rep, it's not just about skills. Yes, those are important, but it's also about leadership style, communication style, philosophy around medicine. So the idea was, can I take this compatibility concept for me, Harmony, and apply it to a new recruiting business? And so while I was still with Dave, I said, hey, Dave, I got this harebrained idea pick it apart for me. You're a practice owner. I was not at the time. And so Dave was instrumental in helping me. He was never involved in the business, but he was a great sounding board. And he was supportive in me starting to think about that while I was working for him. So that when I left, I graduated from college in 07, immediately started working with Dave, left Dave per the plan in January of 08. And I launched that business, which was called My Veterinary Career. I launched that business in February of 2008. Okay. And so how did that eventually morph into uh, practice ownership and the kind of work you do now? Sure. The My Veterinary Career was really focused. We were hired by hospitals. Everything we did was free for candidates. We no longer have NBC, so this is in no way a sales pitch. We were hired by employers. And as part of trying to help employers find the right fits, I started getting into veterinary schools. A friend of mine introduced me to a veterinary student who gave me an opportunity to come speak, which is a whole other story because I'm not a public speaker. And that ended up kind of leading to other speaking engagements, really focused around career development. So compensation models, interviewing techniques, that sort of thing, how to do resumes, cover letters, CVs. Yeah, I did that for three years. It was cool because I love, I still love working with students. I mean, they, they are the next generation, right, of, of owners and just in the profession in general. And that's always filled my bucket. And then and now, I haven't found a way to monetize it and kind of decide that's not why we do it. It really is about trying to give back and prepare the next generation to avoid some of the pitfalls we've had in our generation. Yeah. But being in the veterinary schools caught the eye of the American Animal Hospital Association, AHA. At the time, the executive director was Dr. Mike Cavanaugh, who became a good friend, still is a good friend and a great mentor. The president at the time was Dr. Mark Rusick. Mike and Mark came to me and said, hey, we see you out here in the veterinary schools working on career development. AHA has a career development program. They needed a new director. And so they 
offered to purchase my veterinary career. At the time, I had about five team members with me. And so I joined AHA with my team and we continued doing recruiting for them for a handful of years. And I also stepped into the career development role. I share that story because it was through that opportunity that I continued to do work in school and then leading to the ownership, which then leads to the consulting side. I was teaching in a veterinary school. I had a student come up that at that point I, I taught her class for a couple of years in a row. So I had a pr- pretty decent relationship with she and her husband. And she wanted to go to a really small town in Nebraska and buy a hospital. At the time, the hospital owner refused to hire her, but said, if you want to be here, I'll sell it to you. So she came up to me and said, I've got no idea how to run a hospital. You <laughs> teach on this kind of stuff. Would you be willing to help? And I'm still in academia. And so I can say this pointing a finger at myself. There are some of us in academia that are really good about teaching the concept and the theory, but haven't lived it. I did not want to be that. And so when I had this opportunity to get involved in owning a hospital, sure, I'd run a hospital and manage, but it's different than being an owner. I jumped at the chance to, A, help a friend, hopefully give her a a leg up in her career. And also it was a chance to take all these things I was teaching and that, sure, I'd use some as a manager, but be able to apply to different levels of owner. And that was my first foray into practice ownership. So I know this seems like you probably feel like, oh, I'm sitting here giving my entire uh, CV resume right now. But I, I, yes, did sir, I, do. Dwell, <laughs> I did want to dwell on this a little bit because there's a lot of thinking these days. There's trajectories, traditional trajectories for folks. So here's how it mostly worked for the veterinarian is just like probably your wife. I want to be a veterinarian. I spend time figuring out what it's going to be necessary to become a doctor of animals. And then when I come out, I'm going to be a doctor of animals. And that is my trajectory. And it used to be practice ownership, or you were a manager or a technician or a receptionist or someone, even a kennel attendant volunteers there. Mm -hmm. You want to work in an animal practice. So you ask yourself or the people around you, what do I have to do to work in that kind of business? And I just, what you're talking about is... I mean, you started right there in the traditional thing where your dad comes out of school and gets a practice Mm -hmm. and he's a practice owner. And that's how that's exactly the old trajectory. But your trajectory is much more it bounces around and it's more creative. And I just wanted people to hear about the networking and about the different approaches to things and about how things just pop up. If you kind of keep your ear open to possibilities and this last thing, this great possibility, again, somebody comes to you and says, do you want to do this? And it was probably like. That's also another 90 degree turn. Like you're ensconced, you're in consulting, you're in academia, you're working on products for recruiting. And then you're like, uh, okay, let's go in this other direction. Yes, sir. And it was, again, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, one of the, the turning points in my career, it was the right opportunity with the right person at the right time. And I share with my veterinary students too, because I think sometimes people think about practice ownership and think it's out of their reach with student debt, or I've got to come from money to be able to afford it. And In this case, as well as ever since then, I had a little bit of money in savings that I had, you know, done what my grandparents had taught me to do, which is try to save a little bit. But for this hospital, we went to the bank, we got a loan, which at the time was a terrifying amount of money. In hindsight, (laughs) it wasn't that much. It was a small hospital, but it was terrifying. I think I was, you know, 23 or so at the time. And so very intimidating thing. But you're right. it, It opened my eyes to a whole new way to apply my passion for the profession and my passion for what responsible and successful ownership can do for all of us. And it just kind of, as things do, it kind of snowballed from there. I was still working with AHA, very transparent with them about what I was doing at the hospital. I never had a business, have never had a business that went out and bought hospitals. It was this one-time deal. And then roughly a year later, I had another student from another class come up and say, hey, 
I would love to partner to get some help on it. And again, it was the right person, the right practice, the right price. And so same sort of deal, went to the bank, we got a loan together. I've always been a minority owner and that's kind of important to me as I look at what I want from ownership for the profession. And right. we did it again. And this ended up happening a couple of times. And I eventually hit a point where I was still working for AHA and I hit a point where the bank was looking at my you know, personal balance sheet and saying, you've got more debt than we like, and we're <laughs> done loaning you money to go partner in these hospitals. And that was kind of that third pivotal moment in my professional life because I, I had a choice to make. I loved the ownership and I loved being the minority owner. I loved being able to feel like I was playing a small role in helping someone else build their legacy and build a business that would allow them to accomplish their why. And I couldn't keep doing it on the trajectory I was on because of personal finance, not having money just flowing in from everywhere. And so at that point, I started talking to some private equity firms because I knew that was kind of the traditional, okay, if you want to own a bunch of hospitals, talk to private equity. Nothing against that at all. I decided after talking to several firms and having the opportunity to do some stuff with private equity that their model, the traditional private equity model did not allow the veterinary professional to maintain enough ownership to really change their life. And so I decided I want to go private equity. And so with that being out of the picture, I started thinking, okay, well, how do I keep doing what I love without the money to go buy more? And that is where Blue Heron Consulting came from. Blue Heron Consulting was born out of this passion for helping colleagues, helping friends either get into ownership or make the most out of ownership. And Blue Heron was a way for me to do everything I was doing as a partner, but just with no equity. So Blue Heron we're just a consulting group. We don't own any hospitals, but we get to do all the same things I got to do back then as a partner. And now we just get to do it. I start with a buddy of mine named Dusty. So he and I started this together and we now get to do every day what we used to do in our past life, just at a greater scale. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So let me ask one of your experiments, your kind of internal personal experiments was uh, when you were in academia, you know what? I talk about ownership. I talk about management and I've done management, but I've never actually owned it. So now that you've sort of, you had that experience, now you've maybe gone back to the more consulting management information thing, is there a part that's lacking when you don't own the practice? How does it feel different to you as you go and talk to these people about these things? 
I'm incredibly lucky on a lot of levels, but with regards to your question in two specific ways, number one, I still own a handful of hospitals. I'm still a minority owner in a handful of hospitals. And so I've, I've been able to hold on to that. And so I haven't lost, I haven't lost that experience. I haven't lost that reward. If you will, when I say reward, I think a lot of people think money. I don't mean money. I mean, what I love about being in a partnership is the highs are more fun together and the lows are more tolerable. So what I love most about ownership is not just the financial piece of it, but it's about building something with a partner, with someone that usually becomes a really good friend. So I still get to do that. We did build in the consulting. There's a lot of great consultants. A lot of my mentors are phenomenal consultants. I've been doing this for a long time. When we started Blue Heron, as I think you should do when you start any business, you got to figure out if there's not both need and demand, then why do it? And so in looking at what the traditional consulting model was at the time, we designed Blue Heron to be very different. Not necessarily good, not necessarily bad, not right for everybody, but definitely different than the traditional consulting firm. And one of the many ways, and this is not a commercial for Blue Heron, so I'll focus on the one that's relevant to your question. One of the many ways that we are different is when an owner comes to us, we first and foremost understand what their why is. Why did they get into ownership? Because no one cares about profit margins. No one cares about cost of goods sold. No one cares about those things in practice unless they understand how those things impact what they actually care about. So by understanding that, we then, and we tell clients this, if you want a consultant to hand you a book and say, go do these things, there's some great books out there to do that. When we consult with somebody, we take on the coaching role and we tell them, we are going to act like we're your partner. We're not, we don't own a dime of your business. It is your business, but we are going to treat you like a partner. And that comes with the guiding, it comes with the accountability. So to, to answer your question, Brendan, I've been able to keep that partnership mentality because some people that want help, when they recognize what change looks like, they decide that change is not worth what they thought they wanted. Sure. So by being able to come to say someone and say, look, I'm not just here to hop on the phone once a week and listen and tell you what you should do. I'm going to treat this as if you and I were in this business together and our livelihoods were attached to it. And that level of commitment Again, not good or bad, but it's different. And that also, that's created a path through consulting that mirrors what it's like when there's a financial partnership, if that makes any sense at all. Yes, it does. And so I am curious about that kind of experience that you go in and do there. And now I want to track it back to these veterinary students you talk to. What barriers do you see for veterinary students? My impression was that people were sort of so I don't want to focus on the people skills and I want to focus on the business. So, so there was less and less interest in practice ownership. And now you mentioned another thing, which is as the cost of education goes up, then people just like you had that sticker shock as you were looking at these initial loans for that first time, Holy moly, that's a big loan to start a business. People right. are like, look, I already have this massive school debt, even though everyone will tell them till they're blue in the face, that's quote unquote, oh, that's good debt. That's good debt. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about that, but it's still a massive number. And so they turn away from practice ownership because of that, or because they think I'm not big into the uh, people management and the HR and the financial part of this. So I don't, I don't want to own. There's another reason I don't want to own, or they're scared. Like this is scary. I don't want to take out that big loan regardless. I don't want to be the one responsible. What seem like the barriers are there and why do you still think, Oh no, this is great. If you think you want to be a veterinary practice owner, you still should. Why are you still, why would you just, I'm uh, maybe I'll just, Stick in your, why would you describe yourself as bullish on, no, if you want to be a practice owner, you should go be a practice owner. Yeah. So I am bullish and I'm okay. bullish not because it's right for everybody. And I tell all of our students that I'm not advocating the ownership is the right path. It is not the right path for everybody. It really does come down to 
Why'd you choose this profession? What does success look like to you in all the different levels, right? Success, there can be a financial piece. There can be a emotional piece. There can be a family piece. Uh, there can be a faith piece maybe. So what, what does success look like? And until an individual answers those questions, what's my why? What does success look like? And what kind of mark, if any, do I want to leave on this profession? I think it's hard to say that ownership is right or wrong for an individual. That being said, I don't think a lot of our, of our colleagues ask themselves those questions. What is my why? What does success look like? What mark, if any, do I want to leave on this profession? So I start there. I, the biggest challenge to the next generation of owners yeah. when it comes to should I pursue it is probably my dad's generation. And, and again, I share this with my veterinary students. I still teach at a couple of veterinary schools. And so I share this story with them. Growing up, again, I came from an amazing family. But I vividly remember a lot of my dad's colleagues, they were the stereotypical burnt out, divorced, alcoholic veterinarians who worked 100 hours a week and did everything. And that does not appeal, rightfully so, to the majority of veterinarians. And so I think the biggest challenge or barrier to someone considering ownership is the model that it used to look like. And to answer your question, Brendan, on why am I bullish? That model, sure, you can still choose that model. And there are some people that do. Yes. That model of ownership, I think, is at least partially to blame for why our profession is dealing with some of the challenges that we are. And I tell students, 99% of that setup of ownership is your own choice. If you want to be the type A, I got to do everything, micromanage, and I'm going to do nothing but work my life away, you can make that choice. Some people certainly do. But that's a choice you make. What I love about ownership now, and, I, and I'm seeing this every single day, is ownership, people talk about work-life balance. One of the best ways I know to get work-life balance is to be a practice owner. Now, if you choose to be a solo practice owner and a solo veterinarian and not allow anybody to help you, not build an advisory team, not hire a practice manager, you may not get that work-life balance. But the veterinarians that I know that are owners that are successful and how they define success, they've created that because they have a very clear sense of their why. They know exactly what success looks like to them and their families. They know what they what mark they want to leave on the profession. And then they build a practice or buy a practice that allows them to create that. And there's a great book out there. And of course, now I'm blanking on it. Uh, but it's a book <laughs> of entrepreneurship uh, and working in the business versus is the e-myth. I'm sorry, the e-myth. And there's, a, there's also an e-myth revisited and an e-myth veterinarian that was co-authored by oh, one yeah, of our yeah, colleagues. Yeah. Uh, so e-myth is a great book. It really gets the heart of what you mentioned a minute ago, bringing up. A lot of people that get into any kind of ownership, they get into it because they're passionate about working in the business, not on it. Successful owners, you can be passionate about the medicine, you don't get me wrong, but they're also passionate about working on the business. And those are the people that I see find the most success. You don't have to be the benefits administrator. You don't have to be the practice manager. You don't have to deal with the HR. We have the opportunity. We as practice owners, doesn't matter if you're a veterinarian or a technician or a practice manager or a kennel assistant, practice owners have the ability if they so choose to build a team around them to complement where they're weak, or maybe you're not even weak, maybe you still want to do it. And I think that model of practice ownership is the future because I think it addresses a lot of the challenges associated with the prior models. Okay. So let me ask about the possible nightmare that comes out of that very good thing. So the dream is what you just said, which is you're the practice owner, you figure out your why, and then you don't have to do everything. You don't have to micromanage. You can get a team around you. We're in this weird bubble now where it's very hard to get 
veterinarians. And so maybe I don't know for sure if practice owners, I would think practice owners like many other business owners, especially small business owners, maybe this doesn't happen at the corporate level where you can hide behind layers of middle management, but at the average veterinary practice, there is no layers of middle management. So when there are problems, they pound at the top as well. And so the practice owner is working, way, if they're understaffed, the practice owner, chief veterinarian, is also working way more hours than they want. And this is a crazy time. And this idea, why did I buy into this? Does staffing, is that ever a reason why people tell you, man, I don't know if I want to be practice owner anymore because of, is staffing ever a reason? It's too much is sort of, too much weight is hanging on their shoulders. Are people afraid of that? Yes, sir. It is a reason. And I've got a couple thoughts. I've got a lot of thoughts that you're noticing during this. I've got a couple thoughts on that. One is you're right. At the end of the day, no matter what a great team you have, the buck does stop with the owner. And if all else falls through, you're right. That owner may be the one stepping in. Maybe right. they're having to serve as a tech because they're short on text. Maybe they're yeah. having to pick up extra days they were supposed to be off because they've got a doctor out on COVID, right? So, so I, I want to acknowledge the reality that you're right. As a practice owner, ultimately, it is your job to fix the problem. That being said, and I, my experience is all in private practice, so I, I can't speak towards the corporate side. Sure. On the private practice front, I will say that average hospitals attract and retain average staff. They practice average medicine. They have average efficiencies. And I think I don't consider myself much better than average. So this is not a ding to other people. I strive <laughs> okay. to be better than that. But I share that philosophy because average is average for a reason, right? It reflects the majority. I see right now hospitals that are hiring multiple doctors at a time that are not having trouble with staffing. And it's because some of it's going to be luck, but I think it's a lot more than that, Brendan. I think the hospitals that are not bogged down or plagued by some of the traditional challenges is actually incredibly intentional. They have built a culture that people want to be a part of. They have built a business model that allows you to pay people. If I can go make $15 an hour at McDonald's or I can come work for you and work way harder at a veterinary hospital for $12 an hour, right. I mean, I'm not that smart, but even I can do that math. Most hospitals, it's not that they want to be cheap. I don't think most owners are trying to manipulate or take advantage, but the average hospital does not have the profit margins to run like a business. And so we're, we are stuck having to hire at that $12, $14 an hour, well-run, well-managed hospitals don't have a lot of those same problems because they work really hard every single day to make sure they run a profitable, again, ethical, sustainable, always ethical, sustainable, not never suggesting cutting corners, jacking up prices, but sure. they've created a place where people want to work, where people can be the best they can be. And I know that sounds like just a cliche thing, but you look at studies that why technicians leave jobs. It's not pay is number one. Number one is they're being tasked to do things that veterinary assistant can do. Hospitals, I think, do well with staffing, have everyone performing at the top of their qualifications. So veterinarians aren't doing tech duties. Techs aren't doing assistant duties. Our assistants are not doing CSR duties. It's not because any of those roles are better or worse. So it's not like a chain of, of command and somebody's better or lesser. It's about good people want, was it Mike Cavanaugh used to always say, mastery, autonomy, and, and purpose. So yeah. hospitals, and I know I'm getting long-winded on this one because it's a big soapbox that I hear people complain about it. I think we have way more control over staffing than most of ourselves give ourselves credit for. And it comes down to culture. People want to come and they want to stay a business model that allows us to pay people for what they're worth. And then it's a sense of that. Why I know I keep coming back to this, but it's a sense of, especially this newer generation. I'm, I'm a, a millennial, my generation. And now the ones coming after me for the most part, 
they want to feel like they're, they're part of something bigger than them. Yeah. And so purpose-driven hospitals, whatever that purpose is, tend to do better than others. So again, very long-winded. Yes, I think staffing is a legitimate concern. I do think there's things that, that proactive owners can do to mitigate that. So I think finding that why, I think that's hard enough on an individual level, people can sit and reflect with themselves and then talk to their friends and families and colleagues to try to figure out what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? If I look back at my life, what are the things that I've always loved? If I look forward into the future, what are the things I hope to accomplish? And they can sort of sort that out for themselves. That work of figuring out the why of an entire business and getting people bought in as an entire team together on a shared vision for the business a little harder. I love it. It's a little harder, but I, I want to jump from there because I think it's, it is doable to almost a different topic. I'm curious about the situation you had where you were in academia and a couple of veterinary students came to you and said, hey, I want you to partner with me on this. These were probably people realizing I either don't know enough about running a business or I don't like focusing on this. Do you think the thing that's kind of been pushed, I remember pushing this for so long at Veterinary Economics Magazine, that if you're a veterinarian that doesn't want to focus on the business part, then you just need to find yourself a great practice manager. But the traditional trajectory for a practice manager is somebody's hired as a receptionist and they become the lead receptionist. And then in order to grow, if they're not going to grow into the clinical, then they need to grow into the practice manager. So that person might be good at business or they might not. They were homegrown inside. So their knowledge base or whatever, it could be great if they sought a bunch of knowledge on their own or through a program at the hospital, or they might just be settled in however that place does things is how they do things. Finding a good practice manager, is that a 100% crucial thing? Because that's what your partners, they came, it sounds like they kind of came to you for that. I don't think it has to be a practice manager in title. I think the role has to be filled. I know plenty of veterinarians now that burnt out on clinical practice. And so they're the hospital administrator. They're a veterinarian. They practiced for 20 years and they, they gravitated towards quote unquote hospital administration and management. I think what you're describing is absolutely traditional. And it's still what in my personal hospital still, I don't serve as a practice manager anymore. Right. We've got, we were fortunate to have some amazing managers uh, in each hospital. So I think what you're describing is absolutely the, the traditional trajectory. But I don't think it has to be a manager. It's just got to be somebody or a collection of somebodies. And I've got a friend who's doing a startup in, in Arizona right now. He and I had a very similar conversation around, does he hire a manager right out of the gate at the startup when, when we're watching cash flow? And I say, we, this is, I'm, we're just consulting. It's not a, not, sure. a, not a partner, just a good friend. Um, so do we hire a manager right out of the gate or do we, do we try to figure out other ways to fill the responsibilities? And what I try to do and what I encourage anybody, either even if you're already in ownership or thinking about getting into it is don't focus on the who quite yet. Focus on the what. What responsibilities need to be accomplished day in and day out at two levels? What do we have to do to keep the doors open and meet our mission as a hospital? And then I push myself and encourage other people. Yeah. If that's kind of bare minimum, right? This gets us to average, right? Doors are open. We're paying our staff. Correct. We're accomplishing our mission as a hospital. What has to happen day in and day out to be great? What has to happen day in and day out to not get complacent, to get 1% better every day? And we start by making a list of responsibilities. So bookkeeping, the financial reporting, which is different than bookkeeping, the human resources, the operation type stuff. And then we start looking at, okay, these are the responsibilities I need covered. Now, what are my options? Traditionally, and even I think generally now, a lot of those are going to fall on a manager. 
but they can also fall. I've seen veterinarians where there's three or four partners that are veterinarians and they'll divvy that up. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. I've seen some hospitals where they don't have a, a hospital administrator and instead they build a leadership team and they're going to have three or four support staff members that are going to take this person takes inventory management. This person, this person takes scheduling. Again, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sure. But I think that's kind of the concept is what do we need to accomplish? Then let's focus on who can do it. Want to talk to Stiff? Email him at blueheronconsulting at skeiser, K-E-I-S-E-R, at bhcteam.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.